Jesus Christ deserves total devotion or total rejection. He, he must hold our highest allegiance or no allegiance at all. There, there is no room in the middle. If the Bible is true, if the Holy Scripture is true, if Jesus is who he said he is, if, if he did the miracles, if, if he really was God in the flesh, what he deserves from us is total, utter, complete devotion. But if the Bible is not true, if he did not do the miracles, if he really was not the Son of God, then he deserves no allegiance and no devotion at all. But he is. So he does. So, so, so we should devote our whole life to him. We should give everything that we have to him, all that we are. To, to the depths of our soul, turning everything over to him, figuring out what it means to, to leverage every part of my life, to devote it to Christ, to see him praised, to see him glorified. Why? Because he's worthy of it. Every single person in this room is devoting their life to something. You're devoting your life to a job. You're devoting your life to a family. You're devoting your life to a comfortable future. You're devoting your life to something. And, and just for a moment, I, I want you to compare that to the, the almighty God, the creator of the entire universe, who by his very word is holding all things together. How does what you're devoting your life to now compare to him? It doesn't compare. I mean, how, how silly is it to devote your life to a hobby or to devote your life to gaining money compared to almighty God, creator of the universe, listen, who loves you. See, so, so it's actually illogical to devote your life to something that has less value. He, he is of greatest value, of greatest worth, so it makes logical, consistent sense to, if, if Jesus is who he said he is, to devote your whole life to him, to give it all away to him. But if he's not, it doesn't make any sense. So, so total devotion or total rejection? Wait a second. Isn't there some kind of middle ground here? I mean, that, that's a bit extreme, right? Total, total devotion to Jesus or total rejection of him? Well, listen, he, just listen to some of these claims. Jesus claimed to be sinless. He, never, he, he said that. Jesus also claimed to be eternal. He claimed to be God, okay? Now, what if I made those same claims? What would you think about my mental stability, you probably wouldn't put much stock in my mental stability if I stood here on stage and proclaimed, I am God, I am sinless, and I come from heaven, okay? So it is utterly wrong-headed um, to, to think that there is some type of middle ground. Jesus does not allow you to, to, to live in some type of middle ground to where I can say, well, I'd like to just add a little Jesus onto my life. You know, maybe attend on Sundays or, you know, just whenever I feel like it. Jesus doesn't allow for that. Either he is fully God and you should totally devote everything to him or he's not and you should devote your whole life to yourself doing whatever makes you happy. Those are your options. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Jesus is Lord, 
meaning you should give it all away to him. You should devote your whole life to him, worshiping him, praising him. He's Lord. He's a lunatic, okay? He, he was absolutely crazy. He said all these things. He really believed these things about himself, but he was crazy and it wasn't true. Or he's a liar. Jesus made all of this up, okay? Now, let me, let me just go ahead and, and get that last one out of the way. Jesus stands before the council. He's standing there in front of the Jewish authorities and they're putting him on trial. And this is a trial that if he loses, they're going to kill him. And they say to him, tell us true. Are you the son of God? Are you God? And he says, you have said so and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Now, when he answered that way, Jesus knew that was the signature on his death warrant. Now, if he just made it all up at that point when they said, tell us, are you God? He would have said, nope, made it up. But he didn't. So what I'm saying is either Jesus is Lord or he's a lunatic. There's nothing in between. So I stand here today to beg and plead with you, brothers and sisters, to believe that Jesus is Lord. He's alive we can sing to him. We can worship him. He, he's there. He hears us when we pray. He is Lord and he is alive today. This is exciting. This is worth giving your whole life to because Jesus is alive. Let's take a look at Jesus himself making this type of claim in John chapter 11, this was our reading of the word. Let's take a look back at that text once again. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus came, he had found that Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for four days. A little bit of background. Uh, Jesus had close friends. Um, three of his close friends was Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus had received word that Lazarus was very sick, and the Bible says that he waited. He waited, and during that time, Lazarus passed away. So he's on the way to go meet them, and what happens is there's probably a, a servant or a messenger running out ahead of Jesus, and so as he draws near to where they were, the messenger goes and tells Mary and Martha that Jesus has finally arrived. He's finally here. They've been waiting, anticipating the coming of Christ. They've been waiting for him. The messenger arrives and says, Jesus is here. Mary stays in the house, and Martha goes out to meet him. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And the other Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, some commentators say this. Here is Martha and she's accusing Jesus. She's upset with Jesus. Jesus, if you had only been here, if you just would have been here, he wouldn't have died. But... Look at the context. She, she starts it with Lord. And she's also going to confirm his tight relationship with God the Father. I think it's more of an affirmation of his power and of who he is. She says, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. I, I know you're that powerful, is what she is saying. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. In her emotional state, 
in, 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 her, in her heartbrokenness over the death of her brother, Jesus in this moment begins to narrow her focus. He, he wants to show her something. He, he wants to take her, her, her heart to a certain place. And so he begins by saying this. He, he's, he's ramping up to, to drop a monster gospel bomb. Okay, So as he's ramping up to, to say this, he says, your brother's going to rise again. This is a preempt of what he's about to say. The problem is she doesn't see the foreshadow of what he's about to say. Look at what she says in response. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She affirms a theological truth. Okay? The theological truth is we will be resurrected. At the last day, every single person in this room, you will die, and when Jesus returns, our bodies will be resurrected. Some resurrected to eternal life with him, and others resurrected to an eternal death in a real conscious place called hell. There will be a resurrection, and she affirms that theological truth. What she doesn't do is connect a theological truth to the person and the relationship with Jesus. That's why he responds the way that he does. In his, in his response, he's saying, yes, you are correct. There will be a resurrection of the dead. And watch this. I am the resurrection. That's what Jesus says. So he said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will be raised again on the resurrection last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Friends, today I would ask you that same question. Jesus makes this claim. I am the resurrection. Do you believe this? Look at her response. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. After he makes this, this remark, I am the resurrection, he then vindicates it. <laughs> he, he gives the foreshadow here, and then he vindicates his foreshadowing by doing what? Raising Lazarus from the dead. He, he says it, I am the resurrection, and then he goes to the tomb where Lazarus is, and he says, Lazarus, come out! And he does. <laughs> He, he says, I am the resurrection, and then he backs up his claim by literally raising someone, literally resurrecting someone from the dead. But listen, that wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. How do I know that? Because eventually Lazarus dies again. That was a sign. He makes a statement, I am the resurrection, he raises Lazarus from the dead as a sign, not as a end to his means. What was the sign? What, what, okay, what do signs do? Well, signs point to something. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, what is he pointing to? Well, he's pointing to the fact that he's God, that he has power over life and death, that he is the controller over life and death. In addition, he's pointing to the fact that he himself is going to resurrect Okay, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. Three days later, he's going to resurrect. That's what he's pointing to there. And he's pointing to the fact that 
faith in him and belief in him means that when we resurrect and if we have faith in him, our resurrection will be like his. So, today, we celebrate because Jesus is alive. He, he goes to the tomb. He goes to the tomb. He dies in our place. You are sinners. I am a sinner. I have sinned against a holy God. You have sinned against a holy God. And he holds us accountable for that. He holds us accountable. Unless we believe that what Jesus does on the cross is in our place for our sins. Then we're resurrected with him to newness of life. This is the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not be moral, do good, be better. The, the message of Christianity is about what Jesus has done for us. That, that his death on the cross is in our place for our sins. That faith on him frees us from the bondage of sin and slavery. That, that belief on him is our freedom. So, we believe as a church in a risen Savior who is alive today, who can hear us when we sing to him, who can hear us when we praise him, and we are really, really excited about this. So I'm guessing some of you have come today and, and maybe um, you, you don't buy what I just said. I'm just gonna assume that, that, that there are people in the room that as I'm saying, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, you're thinking, you are crazy. <laughs> there, there's no way. This is silly. So what I wanna do for the rest of our time, I, I wanna give you three evidences, okay? I, I wanna give you three evidences of how we can know the resurrection is true. Listen, the Bible never calls us to a blind faith. It doesn't. God gave us logic, God gave us reason, and he wants us to employ it when it concerns our faith, okay? We're never called to just blindly believe it. He gives us evidences. So I, I wanna show you how you can know that the resurrection is true, that it actually happened. Now, I'm also assuming that there are other people in the room who might say something like this. Okay, so we can know the resurrection is true. What does it matter? Okay, so, so, so a guy resurrected from the grave 2,000 years ago, what, what does that have to do with me? I have bills to pay. My, my marriage is on the rocks. My kids are rebellious. What does it have to do with me? Or maybe you're in this camp. I, things are great for me. <laughs> you know, things are going great. I just got the promotion of the job. My marriage is okay. You know, the kids are okay when they're asleep. Um, so so what, is, what is the resurrection? So what? Okay. I, I want to tell you that we can believe that it's true, and I want to tell you why it matters. Okay. I, I think this matters. I think it really matters. So let, let's look at a couple of these evidences together. I'm just gonna give you three and then I will be out of your hair. Number one, how can we know the resurrection is true? Well, because the Bible gives eyewitness accounts. The Bible gives eyewitness accounts. First Corinthians 15, three through eight. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive. He's saying that because he's, he's assuming you're gonna go ask them. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. New Testament way to say it, they died. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. In addition, he appears to Mary in John chapter 20 and Cleopas and another disciple in Luke chapter 24, 11 disciples and others in Luke chapter 24, Thomas the doubter he appears to in John chapter 20. Why is this important? This is important because we still operate on eyewitness accounts today. In the court of law, life and death is decided on eyewitness accounts. So what we have here is a list of eyewitnesses why are they doing that? Because they were just as skeptical as you are. The, the Bible wasn't written by people who were swept up in some type of religious fervor and, and fanaticism. L listen, the, the dude's name is Thomas the Doubter for a reason. Because <laughs> he was a skeptic. He was a skeptic. And so what the Bible does for us, because they didn't have cameras, they didn't have iPhones, what the Bible does for us is it gives us credible witnesses to say we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that 2,000 years ago a man named Jesus died, was buried, and came back to life. And here's a list of eyewitnesses who saw it happen. In addition, think about this. In, in, in the court of law, what they'll do is when they get these eyewitness testimonies, they will look at the character of the person who is giving the account. Think about the character of the disciples. Are, 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 are these crooked guys? Are they, or are they guys who gave their whole life away to help widows, orphans, and the poor? The, their character matches up. These are people whom we can trust. What's very interesting is silly documentaries that play on the History Channel um, will say things like this. Well, maybe the disciples hallucinated, okay? Listen, he appeared to 500 people at one time. 500 people at one time don't have the same hallucination. It, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So they saw him alive. In addition, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, okay? Let me just remind you, the Apostle Paul, the guy who used to hunt down and kill Christians, all of a sudden has a massive change of heart and wants to love and serve Jesus. How does that happen? What, what logical explanation can we give for this? Well, he saw the risen Christ. He saw the risen Christ. In addition, other people will say, yes, they saw the risen Christ because he never actually died. He, he swooned on the cross. He faked it, right? He's up on the cross. He, you know, he pulls a fast one. They, they pull him off the cross. They put him in the tomb. Three days later, he pops out. Dun, da, da, da. See, I came back to life when he actually never died. Here's the problem. He was pronounced dead by a professional Roman executioner who stabbed him in the heart. You, you only have one heart. If you get stabbed in it, you're dead. So... He really died. He really went in the tomb. And three days later, he really came out. And we have eyewitnesses to prove it. Number two, second line of evidence to where we can know the resurrection is true. His own family worshiped him as God. Jude 1, 21. Keep yourselves in love with God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to lead us to eternal life. Why is that verse significant? The reason that verse is significant is because Jude is Jesus' brother. In addition, the author of James, James is also Jesus' brother, okay? Now, um, early on in the Gospel of Mark, 
his family comes to him and he's there preaching and teaching. He's saying things like, I'm God. He's saying things like, I'm going to die and resurrect. And his family come and they say, Jesus, you're, you need to get on some medication. You're crazy, okay? We, we don't know what's wrong with you, but you need to go talk to Dr. Phil or something because th this is just not, you, you need to come with us, Jesus. This is what his family says. But then all of a the sudden, they're writing books of the Bible, and, and Jude and James become pastors. What happened in, in, in the middle there? How did they go from thinking that their brother is crazy to thinking that their brother is God? H has anyone ever made that mistake in this room? You thought your brother was God? Some of you might have thought your brother was the devil, but not God. In addition... What church historians tell us is that his, his mother was numbered among those um, who were worshiping and singing to Jesus. Again, how is that even possible? It, it's possible because he resurrected from the grave. That would be the only thing that would convince them. Thirdly, we also must recognize the massive change in the disciples. Let's take a look at Acts 2, 38 through 40. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Not too um, long after Jesus has died, what's happening? Well, the disciples are scared and have scattered. They're scared to death. They're afraid that the Jewish officials are going to come in and kill them too. And so they're hiding behind locked doors. They are scared to death. Then something happens, and all of a sudden, we see in Acts, Peter is standing boldly proclaiming, repent and be baptized, believe in the resurrected Jesus. How does he make that change? What gives him the courage to stand and boldly preach? Well, he saw the resurrected Christ. Not to mention, all of the disciples die martyrs' deaths except for John. But listen, John was boiled alive. Okay, look, again, some people say, well, the, the disciples stole the body. No, the disciples did not steal the body. You don't steal a body and then die to keep that lie hidden. You don't do that. Uh, in addition, you tell lies that get you good things, right? You tell lies that get you naps, hugs, candy, and bacon. You don't tell lies. Those are all good things. You don't tell lies that get you beheaded and crucified upside down. So what makes the disciples go from a group of guys who were scared to death, hiding behind locked doors, to being bold, empowered, proclaiming Jesus Christ is risen from the grave to the point to where they were literally killed for their faith. How did they make that change? The only way that I see it's plausible is they saw the risen Christ. There are many, many other evidences that I could give you, but to save time, let's move on. At this point, I hope that you're saying, okay, he resurrected from the grave. So what? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that he got up from the grave 2,000 years ago? Why is this such a big deal? Why are you wearing a purple tie and yelling really loud, excited about this? Here's why it matters. Number one, because we can do 
what we were created to do. We can do what we were created to do. If Jesus is dead, it's impossible to do what we're created to do, but if Jesus is alive, we can do what we're created to do. What are we created to do? Well, glad you asked. We're created to worship and to serve. We're created to worship and serve. If Jesus is dead, we can't worship him, but because he's alive, we can worship him. Every single person is a worshiper. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been to a concert and, and the band is playing and it sounds awesome and, and people are kind of moving and swaying and there's just, a, there's just an electric feeling in the room? You guys ever experienced that before? Or, or maybe you've, you've been to a big game and, and the team takes the field and, and people stand and cheer and clap and, and again, there's just that electric feeling. Where does that come from? It comes from being created to be worshipers. It's in your DNA to want to worship. And I'm telling you right now, every single person in this room is a worshiper. You worship something. You give your time to something. You give your talent to something. And you give your treasure to something, which means you are a worshiper. I don't care if you're an atheist, an agnostic, a whatever. You are a worshiper. The question is, what are you worshiping? And so, because Jesus resurrected, we're able to do what we're created to do, which is worship him. That's why the resurrection matters. Not only were we created to worship, we're also created to serve. You see, the world wants to tell you this lie. The way to happiness is freedom, meaning you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and excess. Big houses, cars, clothes, money. If you get those things, if you get freedom, and if you get excess, you'll really be happy. Make the whole world serve you. That is the height and pinnacle of happiness and joy. That's what the world wants to tell you. I tell you this, the height and the pinnacle of true joy and happiness in life is service to Christ giving your whole life to him, serving the local church, serving your brothers and sisters in Christ, loving other people, and giving your whole life away to those around you. That, my friends, is how to have joy. So the resurrection matters because we can do what we're created to do. In addition, number two, the resurrection matters because it gives us real hope. Have you come here this morning without any hope? You just feel like it's hopeless. All you do is you wake up, you go to work, you earn the paycheck, you pay the bills, and the bills keep coming, so you go back to work, you earn the paycheck, you pay the bills, you come home, you eat supper, you go to sleep, you wake up in the morning, and it's just a rat race. Anybody feel like that? So, the resurrection gives us real hope. Why? Because we know there's something greater to come. That if he resurrected... If he resurrected, then we will be joined with him in a resurrection like his. So that means in our future, there is a time of no more sin, no more shame, no more pain, no more suffering. There will be a time when Jesus returns, that the heavens will be torn back, and he institutes his final kingdom where we're joined with him forever at peace. That, my friends, is something to have hope in. This world has nothing to hope in. But the resurrection matters because if he resurrected, that means we resurrect and we, we can have real hope. You, you see, the then controls the now. Does that make sense? The, the then, what's to come, 
peace with him, face to face with God and his kingdom, that controls my now. Lastly, and then I'll get out of your way. Number three, the resurrection matters because there is power to defeat sin and death. Some of you have come here today and sin is blowing your life up. The resurrection means there is power to defeat that sin. Every single person in this room is a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Welcome. And what happens at the resurrection, that's the receipt saying payment has been made. You see, when we look to the cross, we see our sin, our shame, all that stuff you did in college, all that stuff you did in the back seat, what you did last week, for believers, it's nailed to the cross. My sin, my past sin, my current sin, my future sin for believers is nailed to the cross and it's paid for. It's paid for on the cross and his resurrection is the receipt that says, I'm forgiven. That when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see a, a dirty, rotten sinner. He sees a saint. So the resurrection means I can be free from the power of sin and free from the power of death. At the end of your life, you will only be hit by the shadow of death because you will be face to face with Jesus. Friends, I wanna tell you this. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi's dead. Jesus is alive. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. So I wanna ask you this question. I wanna ask you the same question Jesus asked Martha. He says, I am the resurrection. Those who believe in me, have faith in me, trust in me, they won't see death. They'll be eternally with me forever. Do you believe this? My heart and my hope today is that you would answer just as she does. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Would you guys pray with me? We worship you today. We sing to you today joyfully, excited, excited that you're alive today, that, that this isn't in vain, that as I pray you hear me because you're alive, that your resurrection power really means something. Your resurrection matters and we can know that it's true. God, I thank you for all these people who have gathered here today. God, I pray right now that you would send your Holy Spirit to do a mighty work, that someone in this room today, right now, would be transferred from death to life, God. I pray that if anyone in here is not a believer, right now, today, they choose to follow Christ, they surrender to him and say, God, I'll follow you from this day forth. I believe in your resurrection. I pray that happens right now, even as I'm speaking. God, would you save, God? You're mighty to save. We believe that you're powerful enough to change even the most hardened hearts. We believe that you can take someone from death to life. We believe that you can take someone from non-believer to believer, from atheist to Christian, and we pray for your power poured out right now to do so, God. Would you do that? If you guys would, just kind of keep your eyes closed just for a moment. If that's you today, if, if you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, to, to know more about what it means to be a believer, would you just come to the back 
um, and, and, and see us. I'll be in the back. Um, Charles will be in the back. If, if you want to talk to somebody and pray with somebody today uh, about becoming a Christian, would you just do that? Um, you, you can do that at any point um, as, the, as the band plays. God, we love you. I, I pray that every single person in this room would make the response that Martha makes. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you for defeating sin and defeating death. We pray all these things in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.